Welcome to the Scene Gym Podcast. I'm Sally Howell, Director of the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. The Scene Gene podcast highlights the voices of contemporary Arab American writers. It is brought to you by the Center for Arab American Studies and the Arab American National Museum, and it is funded by the University of Michigan Arts Initiative and the Ford Community Development Fund. Joining us today is Safia Al-Hilo, the Sudanese-American author of The January Children, which received the 2016 Sillerman First Book Prize for African Poets and a 2018 Arab American Book Award from the Arab American National Museum. She's also author of the chapbook, The Life and Times of Susie Knuckles. And with Fatma Asghar, she is co-editor of the anthology Halal, If You Hear Me. Alhilo earned a BA from NYU and an MFA in poetry at the New School. Her work has appeared in several journals and anthologies, including the, the Breakbeat Poets, New American Poetry in the Age of Hip Hop, and Women of Resistance, Poems for a New Feminism. Alhilo was a founding member of SLAM New York University, the 2012 and 2013 National Collegiate Championship team, and was a three-time member and former coach of the DC Youth SLAM Poetry team. A Cave Canham Fellow, she is the co-winner of the 2015 Brunel International African Poetry Prize and has been listed in Forbes Africa's 30 Under 30. In 2018, Elhelu was awarded a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Poetry Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation. She's currently a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. Today, I'm happy to be able to discuss her most recent work, Home is Not a Country, a young adult book from the Make Me a World imprint at Random House. Welcome to the Scene Gene podcast, Safia. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. On that note, would you read Nostalgia Monster for us? Okay. So these are some excerpts from Home is Not a Country. Nostalgia Monster. Haytham calls me a nostalgia monster and likes to laugh at the dream brain that takes over mine when I hear the old songs and run my fingers over the old photographs. I know the words to the old films and imagine myself gliding in to join the dance, glamorous in black and white, photographed in sepia, frozen in a perfect time. I wish our Arabic teacher would tell us more about what it was like back then, before everyone left when they were young and dreaming and hearing the songs crackling out of the radio. But I cannot imagine him young or dancing, cannot imagine him any way except the way we know him now, scowling over conjugations and how we mispronounce the language, how it wilts on our American tongues. One of my favorites is a Sayyid Khalifa song where he sings to a girl he calls a pearl necklace, Ya Igdaluli Luli, Ya Bitya Hilwa Ya Luli, and says, where are the beautiful ones? Where did they go? And I think he means us, all the ones who left, all the gone. Those are wonderful. I, Thank um, you. So I do want to spend most of our time talking about home is not a country, but I did also just want to kind of maybe start off talking a little bit about uh, the January Children Collection, which is a collection of poems that connects the personal to the political, that illustrates how history lives in the present in multiple ways, and that reveals the various ways in which language, culture, and geography are negotiated by people 
whose lives have been shaped by migration and exile. There's a lot of conversation in this poetry between the poet and her family members, between the poet and Abdel Halim Hafez in particular, an Egyptian star of stage and screen, and really between the poet and herself. You know, these are like negotiations across generation, across time and space. And, you know, they really explore your personal struggle to reconcile your place in the world. And so much attention here is placed on the relationship between Sudan and, you know, the rest of the Arab world, I think, between um, between Arabness and blackness. And I know that you have, uh, you know, you you prefer to be called a Sudanese American writer, not an Arab American writer. So I want to give you a chance to maybe explain why that's the case or how this relationship between the Arab world and Sudan, there's the, the tension that exists there, how that figures in your work. So I I want to preface by saying I am not speaking for all Sudanese people here. Um, You know, I'm no one's uh, community is a monolith, but Sudanese people in particular are just so hard to pin down into a single identity. So I um, I don't want anyone to hear this and then go off and go tell their Sudanese friend you're not an Arab. You know, some Sudanese people do identify as Arab. And I don't think their choice invalidates mine. And I don't think my choice invalidates theirs. We contain multitudes. That being said, uh, yes, I am a Sudanese American writer. And also I am not an Arab American writer. I have a sort of complicated relationship to Arab people and to the, the Arab world or the Arabic speaking world, because I I am an Arabic speaking person. I come from an Arabic speaking country. I have great cultural ties to that world. I think I have an identity shaped by this Arabic and also um, my race is independent of it. I think I often kind of have to sit in that tension of feeling pretty in community with, um, particularly in writing spaces with other Arab American writers but also really never having the choice to forget the relative blackness of my body in those spaces. In in the writing spaces in particular, I've often been made to feel very welcome. It's not about that. But I have always also felt acutely aware that I am in these communities, but not of them. And then in non-writing spaces, in spaces that are maybe a little less generous, um, I think over the years, especially when I was younger and I think was less certain about what to call myself in relation to Arabness and was maybe a little more interested in trying to claim a space for myself within Arabness. It would take me two seconds in a majority Arab space to be made to feel like that wasn't quite right either. You know, and I could take up this whole hour just on the microaggressions. Who taught you to speak Arabic? Where did you learn to speak Arabic like that, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I would identify myself as Sudanese, in, like specifically Sudanese, I um, was then often brought face to face with how Sudan and Sudanese people exist in the Arab imagination, which is, you know, racism, anti-Blackness is not innovative. It's not creative. It's the same stereotypes in every part of the world, you know? So Sudanese people are lazy. You get every year to this day, the Ramadan soap operas out of Egypt, where there's always somebody in blackface. 
and they're always supposed to be Sudanese. And that's, that's the whole joke, you know, um, some dude in a turban with his face painted black speaking broken Arabic. And that's the whole joke. I think it got to a point where I had to ask myself why it mattered so much to me to be accepted in spaces like that. I I don't think it would have felt like an accomplishment or an achievement on my part to be welcomed into those sorts of spaces. If I were to be welcomed into those sorts of spaces, it would have more to do with some kind of some sort of like passing than it had to do with that space being actually welcoming to me and my people. And so I abandoned that project. I think I'm happy to be like a distant cousin or whatever and bond over, you know, music, film, culture, that sort of stuff. But, you know, I can be like a visiting homie. I don't have to be kin. We don't have to be the same thing. And I think I'm, I'm just learning to hold space for the, the sort of complication of that. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate this. Um, um, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to you from the Metro Detroit area where we have a lot, a large Chaldean population. So they're, you know, similarly relate, related to Arabness and that they speak Arabic, at least in these generations they do. And they come from an Arabic speaking country and, um, but they have a different history. And I mean, they have much shared history, much shared culture in common with other Iraqis, but for a variety of reasons, the, this community for really important historic reasons and for very important reasons in the present, this population in the time that I've been in Michigan, which is since the since the 1980s, I've seen the the Chaldean community sort of disaggregate themselves from the Arab community more and more and more over the years. Like just like you're saying, some some Chaldeans identify very proudly as Arab, um, and then uh, you know others don't. So it, I mean, these are all personal things, and they're based on your own personal history. So I appreciate your your thinking on this and the nuances of your thinking on this, and I recognize that you have a history of relationships that, you know, that, that are, that are real, uh, that have also shaped, um, shaped your, your sense of self and your, your sense of identity. So I appreciate that. So many of the cultural habits or practices of the family that you grew up in, or that you describe, especially in this latest book are things that for somebody like me, they're, they're, they're things I would describe as Arab. So pardon me if I slip into that and refer to them as Arab, uh, rather than Sudanese when I'm talking to you. I also like the way in your, in your poetry, in January children. I mean, the whole context of the book, the title of the book, it, it speaks to, you know, the colonial history of Sudan. Do you want to explain to the audience the title of the book and where it, what it, what it signifies? Yeah. So at the time I thought this was unique to Sudan, but come to find out um, many former colonies have a similar phenomenon, but the January children were a generation born in Sudan under British occupation. My grandfathers are January children. Children were lined up and assigned birth years by height and all given the birth date January 1st um, for, you know, I'm sure like some kind of official recording reasons. We used to make the joke that my grandfather is a little bit shorter. So we always thought that maybe he's older than what the paperwork has to say. Um, <laughs> if they, if they were just using height as that marker of age, it happened to a whole generation of people. So by the time I came around, it was fairly commonplace where I remember, I think hearing my aunt mention it in passing once when I was a teenager and I had been obsessed with it ever since. 
So it's a generational reference, but it's also a reference to a colonial history. And then so much of the sort of post-colonial experience of Sudan also enters into your work. I was really um, intrigued to see that this is, it's, do you call it a novel? Yes, it is a novel in verse. It's a novel in verse. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was called a novel. Yeah. It, it, it's just a fascinating uh, book. And I was like, it, I think it made me anxious when I first realized that it was a novel in verse, because maybe I've been uh, uh, traumatized by too much, like, you know, epic poetry and, you know, Homer and things like that, you know? Uh, and I was afraid that it would be a challenge for me to read that I would have to be, you know, constantly like analyzing, but it's not like that at all. It's just this really beautiful, beautiful spare text where I feel everything is so crafted. You go straight to the meaning of, of each section, each sort of uh, every page or two is a different poem named often after one of the characters in the book, but also after other subjects, events, happenings, but each one, they just build on each other in such a a beautiful way. And it's so stylized and it's just, you just relax right into it. <laughs> I'm saying this to any readers out there who had my, who share the anxiety that I had, but tell me, I mean, I do realize you're a poet, but how, how did this project come about? What, what made you want to write it in verse? First of all, because I really only know how to write verse. I don't know that I've ever written like a full sentence that I feel good about. I think when I'm writing in prose, it's primarily when I'm like writing an email or something. So I don't know that my creative brain knows how to switch registers really. I don't know that I necessarily uh, feel comfortable in that other toolkit. And narrative was already such a new undertaking for me that what I was not going to do to myself was like be in a new genre by writing narrative and then also be in a new form by writing prose. There would be no book. I would still be over here trying to figure out what a comma does. So to backtrack, the novel came about because I was having a conversation with Christopher Myers who runs Make Me a World. And he was asking me if... A, if I had ever considered writing a book for young people, and I said I had, and it was something that has been on my mind because that is, you know, the age that made me a reader and therefore made me a writer. And it felt important to make an offering to at least that version of myself, if no one else were to ever read it. And then he was like, okay, cool. Next question. Have you ever thought about writing a novel? And I was like, with all due respect, sir, no, I have not ever thought about writing a novel, but thank you so much for your consideration. He was very smooth. He switched gears very quickly. He was like, okay, no problem, no pressure. Anyway, talk to me about some of your favorite books. And I, for years, have been obsessed with Anne Carson's autobiography of Red, which for some reason, for my first years of having a relationship with this book, I, I completely failed to register that it was a novel in verse, or maybe I just didn't super know what a novel in verse was. I thought she maybe made it up. You know how she's always calling things essays and their poems. So I, I thought it maybe was a case of that and I had never really put too much stock in it being a novel. I thought it was a project book. I thought it was a book of poems that were all like gathered under a conceit and had a recurring cast of characters. And I tried to write that book and that's how I made The January Children. The January Children was just me trying to write the book I thought Autobiography of Red was. So then I'm talking to Chris Myers 
and I'm gushing about Autobiography of Red and he lets me finish. And he was like, great, great, great. You know, your favorite book of poems is a novel. And then, you know, everything exploded. Um, It very quickly made this form that I had thought of as like impossible and off limits for myself suddenly feel like something that involved tools that I already had and and was something that I had inadvertently been studying. And, you know, I, I love novels. I love fiction, but it has been my primary pleasure reading world. And so I didn't want to touch it for a very long time. I love reading poems, love reading poetry. There's nothing like it. And also my work brain is always engaged when I'm reading a poem. I can't just be like, wow, I love that. I'm like, why did I love that? What's happening? What are the tools and devices being used, et cetera, et cetera. I read novels kind of like how I watch TV. You know, I'm just, I kind of can just sink into it and follow the story and just be in another world and not have to be in my own brain as much. And so the thought of bringing my work brain into that space felt like sacrilege and I never wanted to do that, except then I did. I'm sure you know, and I'm sure other people have told you, and I've read the blurbs on the book. Other people have, I mean, it is just a genius text. It is beautiful. Each poem works as its own poem. You can take them out and read them as individual objects and they make sense. And they, they have that sort of like emotional arc to them, but then you put them together and they articulate the relationships between people, how they change over time. When you talk to a poet, I think you do assume that the poems are about that person's life, you know? But when you talk to a novelist, you don't want to assume that the text is autobiographical. You know, so when I was reading this, I just kept seeing echoes of your other poetry in the book Mm -hmm. and the themes of the other poetry, like the nostalgia. uh, The the other poems are also very nostalgic for Sudan. And um, also this, this, this question about what caused your family to migrate? I do want to be clear though. Um, so this book is very much like the January children's like hardcover teenage sister, but also that was kind of the appeal of this form is in my poems. I usually am so bound to and responsible for the autobiographical facts and my speaker's eye is treated as my autobiographical eye. The novel was fun because I got to make stuff up. My name is not Nema. I uh, did not grow up in the suburbs. I grew up in Washington, D.C., et cetera, et cetera. So I, I borrowed a lot from my life. Like I also went to Arabic school. I also was almost named Yasmin. But I borrowed details more than I borrowed narrative information. None of the events really that Nema experiences in the book are events that I experienced, except for the thing at the airport, which happened to uh, me and my mom and my brother when I think we were going to the Bahamas or something for a wedding. I couldn't believe that anecdote, by the way. I I mean, to me, I just, my, my, my jaw dropped open. So what happens in the story is your family's getting ready to go on a trip overseas and the the ticket agent just won't, won't let you on the plane. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I think I understand the impulse because it also, so the difference in the novel is that you know, Nama's mom, she's already kind of uh, beaten down and this is just the, the straw that breaks the camel's back and she just is defeated and lets it happen. My real life mother has big, can I speak to the manager energy? We got like a year's worth of free tickets from the airline or something. She was like on the phone with them 
minutes after it happened is the main difference. So it, that I think was the only story that I borrowed for the novel and used. Everything else is made up. Even the fact that you'll notice that Sudan is never mentioned in the novel. Not by name, not by name. Yeah, where, you know, there are plenty of Easter eggs for anyone who has ever maybe heard of Sudan to be like, that's probably Sudan. But I wanted to free myself to not have the responsibility of accuracy in this space where I'm finally getting to make stuff up for the first time in my life, you know? So um, it was very much based on like borrows details from Sudan, makes references to Sudanese culture. Um, there's, there are Sudanese musicians specified by name. Um, and her family, her community shop at the Bigala and they dance to Gisma and all this stuff. So obviously, obviously it's Sudan, but I wasn't going to call it Sudan for two reasons. Um, I didn't want someone who doesn't know anything about Sudan and Sudanese people to treat this book as like an anthropological text and be like, oh, this, look, I read the story and now I know why all these Sudani people are in diaspora because this happened. Or, you know, it's so hard and backwards in Sudan. These people are so lucky that they came to America, whatever, whatever. You wouldn't and get that also, impression from the book anyway, I'll say. The, the well, Sudan yeah, I, in the book is not backwards. It's it's not, it's not, so, it's not the know? same as the, as, as the Sudan in January children. That's true. That's for sure. Well, because it is and isn't Sudan, you know, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's sort of a dreamscape based on Sudan. And then on the other end, I, um, I wasn't in Sudan in the seventies and eighties. So I can only piece together and assume and imagine what it was like. But I think, you know, one of my like diasporic hangups or whatever is getting it wrong when I say anything about Sudan, in particular, when I say anything in public about Sudan. So I didn't want to have a title card being like Sudan 1979 or whatever, um, and then get it wrong because um, that would be devastating to me and embarrassing. And, you know, I surely would have some auntie calling me and be like, you know, that's not what really happened, right? And I, I just wanted that feeling of freedom I was feeling in calling my protagonist Nirma instead of Sofia. I wanted that to extend to every corner of the book where I didn't want at any point where I was already like working through so much like shame and timidness and even like trying to write in this form. I didn't want this like looming cloud of like fact checking over me. So I just threw it all out. None of the names corresponds to real life. A bunch of the events are made up. A lot of the details are true, but you know, that's, cause that's well, what I've got, you know? Yeah, no. And I, I get that. I mean, so, so you make use in the book of what I, what I would call magical realism. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I noticed that in some of the front material for the book that they use the term fantasy. So I think that's maybe a more youth friendly way of saying magical realism. <laughs> clearly, this is um, this is a work of imagination. It's a work of fiction. I mean, clearly just the, I mean, it's, it's just it was just a familiar landscape to me. It was a familiar like psychological landscape landscape because I'd read January Children. Mm-hmm. Right? And it really like really spent some time in it and, and enjoyed it so much. So I, I saw so many resonances. And to me, that made the book a richer book 
But so there are a couple of things that you do that I think are um, like the, to me, and I know, I know that you did this in Jan, in the January children too, but your use of Arabic, like, I, I just love the fact that you use Arabic like a real language and, and, and you don't bother to translate every expression or every phrase um, for the audience. And you even use Arabic script so that, um, you know, so for many young American readers, that's not going to be intelligible. You know, it's just such a, you know, it's such a natural thing to do. It shares with the reader sort of where Nama is coming from. You know, this, this is the way she thinks. This is the way she talks. It makes it all so much more real and immediate. But I can imagine that for some presses, you know, that some editors might push back against that sort of thing, you know, trying to make everything over accessible um, to, to young readers and things like that. So I'd just like to hear like how you imagine the language that you use in the text, how, how it appears on the page, how, how people react to it and what your intention was. And in, in, you don't use a lot of Arabic here, but, but it's here, it's present. And it always carries lots of like emotional meaning and in, in addition to like the literal meaning. Yeah. So I've been pretty fortunate with both of my presses where like no editor or anyone there has ever even asked me a question about it. You know, there were a couple of times in copy editing where they, um, copy editors that are familiar with Arabic and in, but mostly they were just talking to me about the transliteration where they were like, here is how I would spell this. And I was like, here is how I, in my Sudani accent would spell this. Um, and that was mostly the conversation we were having. But as far as the, the chunks of text that are in Arabic, written in Arabic script, everyone just kind of let me do my thing. And they were like, yeah, no, totally. I think I had to make a decision with my work pretty early on, like in the early days of writing the poems that would become the January children, that I had to make up my mind about who, like, who I was writing towards. Um, and who I was like keeping in mind as I was writing. I am not an outward facing writer. I, um, I like never want to be in a position where I'm like speaking about my people to someone else. I'm not built for it. I, I, uh, I love to make I statements. And so, and it also, I think just the nature of both books is they are offerings to very specific communities of people. So that's been my unit of measurement the whole time. Does this make sense to this person that I am making this as an offering for? Yes, no, go from there. Will they think this joke is funny? Yes, no, let's go from there. So there, with both books, I think there are two versions of all of those poems. I think there is a version of the poem that you can still experience and get a sense of and hopefully have a satisfying experience if you can't read Arabic script. And then there's like the bonus edition if you can read all of the, the stuff that's on the page. So they're just little little Easter eggs for my people. And it, it, yeah, it really rewards the insider in a special way, but it's not at all off-putting. And in fact, I think the fact that you include all this detail that might not might not cross over for all audiences it, it only makes the story more universal. I, and I can't explain why that is true. Um, but, you know, there's this, there's the poem you have in the, in the Midnight Children. It's the self-portrait with dirty hair. Mm. Um, and it's the one where your grandmother 
you know, there's a line at the end where your grandmother judges you and, uh, you know, like your, your hair isn't done to her standard. She's from a different generation and has a different mm-hmm. generational standard about what hair should look like. And it's, it's, it's a very, very personal, very contextual poem. All the details are just from that context, but it's a story that anyone who has a grandmother <laughs> can probably <laughs> relate to because we've all not lived up to that, that, yeah. you know, cross-generational expectation. And it's all the detail that, that makes the poem resonate because you've got your own, you can fill in the blanks with your own details, you know? Well, I think that's how I was taught to be a writer. You can't like generate universality on your own. You can only lean harder and harder into specificity and that will sort of circle back around. My favorite experience as a reader is when I read something so specific that I feel like I'm eavesdropping. You know, I, that's the, I want what I am reading to feel so intimate and so specific to whoever that speaker is talking to. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's not me, but I want to feel like I'm witnessing a real conversation that's being had instead of, and, you know, I then try and bring that back to my own work instead of, you know, being like, ladies, I'm more interested in being like, here is what happened to me. Here is what I remember. Here is what I observe. Here is my experience of the world. Whether or not anyone can relate, I want to like just be as accurate as I can in, in getting down my own stuff, because it also, I think not to get conscious in the cipher or whatever, I think in that's how we are taught to read like canonical white texts. If like, I don't know what an apple tree looks like, but I am, I am expected to just sit with it and, and imagine that and just give that person the benefit of the doubt that they know what they're talking about. And, you know, I, I think as a reader, especially as a younger reader, it felt like I was so privy to conversations that like canonical white writers were having with other white people. And I just had to figure it out. So I think I was trained as a reader to eavesdrop. It kind of translated to how I make sense of the work as a writer, where I'm like, okay, there are one of two experiences that you can have as a reader. Either you're in the inner circle and you're being directly addressed, or you are eavesdropping. And there is a version of the book for both camps. So let me write a version of the book for both camps. But I cannot be having a direct conversation with everybody because I don't know everyone. I don't know everyone's business. Uh, I don't know that we all speak the same language. But what I can try and do is get it as accurate as possible to who I'm really talking to. And I think something about the spirit of the thing will translate out. So one of the the big the, the the magical realistic device that you use is the gin. And you know, I just thought it was so refreshing that, you know, these these talk of gin and fear of gins and being cautioned against gin, this comes up early in the text. And so you kind of like, um, if you don't already know what a gin is, you're you you might go look it up, you know, the word comes up a few times, you know, but it's never explained. There's no didacticism here. And it's exactly like you're saying, the reader is just eavesdropping. If they don't already know, then they're hearing something and then they're they're gonna figure it out, right? They're gonna figure it out from the story. I don't know, I don't want to have spoilers here. <laughs> I don't want to give away too much of the narrative, but it is 
built on a young woman who is um, very isolated, uh, you know, with an immigrant mother, lives alone with her mother. Mother works all the time. Uh, this is not the American dream migration where people come and move immediately to the suburbs and live in giant houses and have four cars in their driveway. Um, it's a it's a struggling. It's a, it's a life of exile for the mom and to a large extent for the daughter as well. And in her loneliness and her isolation, she's kind of filling in the gaps um, she is very, just like I was seeing in your poem, in, in your book, The January Children, there are all these conversations that you're having with other people, family members with, you know, Abdul Halim Hafiz. But then you're also having these conversations with yourself where you're very, very judgmental and critical of yourself. And, and Nama is, is in this category, too, um, where she's very unhappy. Um, she's unhappy with herself, unhappy with her life. And she imagines this other version of herself that is the the potential version of herself. If her parents had only named her Yasmin, maybe she'd be this whole other happy, healthier, more beautiful, better adjusted person than she is. So, so tell me about this, just this device and, and where it comes from. And um, I, I mean, it, it's, it's just, it's something that I think, um, you know, any adolescent can really relate to this. So I was thinking a lot I mean, for for years since I, I read this interview, I have been thinking a lot about something the poet Ladan Osman said in an interview where she was saying that, you know, part of her particular diasporic experience was always growing up wondering how she would be different if she had grown up, you know, quote unquote, back home. And I also think about that in relation to the Mahmoud Darwish quote from In the Presence of Absence, where he says, if I were there, you think my laugh would be louder and my voice clearer. I think I might be butchering that quote. But so I, I think, you know, much like the two geniuses I just quoted, that feels accurate to me in, in the diasporic experience that I had as a young person where, you know, it's hard being a teenager. It was uncomfortable. It like, yes, because I was like black and Muslim and diasporic, but also because I was a teenager and it sucked. And it was very easy for me to have this like very tangible alternate reality that I could dream into when I wanted to sort of dissociate from the discomforts of my own life and experience. So I think before I knew much about what was going to happen in the story, I knew there was going to be this sort of longing for an alternate self, longing for an alternate life, because I think that is an experience that I know intimately. The thing about the like spooky spirit stuff of it all is it didn't even occur to me that that was the magical realism. I think there's like the time travel and stuff I think of as magical realism. I, I need to just memorize this at this point, but I have not yet. But Toni Morrison has some really great things to say about magical realism and um, why she doesn't, she personally doesn't like to use the term. So it, I don't know that I care one way or another about whether the term is used about my work. It just never occurs to me to use it myself because it's the world that I grew up in is so spooky and witchy and everyone speaks so casually about jinn and spirits and the evil eye and spells and whatever, that it never occurred to me that that wasn't realism. It doesn't need delineating. It doesn't need to be designated as like a modified version of reality or modified realism, because that's, that is my reality. That is, 
if I am writing a realistic depiction of the world and the culture that I grew up in, people are superstitious. People see spirits. People are haunted. Um, there's just gin around, you know? And that also, you know, gin never felt like a fairy tale or nothing to me. There, like, there's gin in the Quran. It just was very much like, like just such an accepted fact that no one really ever talked to me about it at length. I don't know that I've ever had a full conversation with any grown up in my life about gin because it just was in passing. You know, I, me and my brother would be running around at Morib and my grandma would be like, you all need to stop that because the gin are going to come and knock you over. And we would be like, okay, we're going to sit down now. No follow-up questions. So when I was writing that part of the book, it was maybe, you know, leaning a little more literally into the alternate self, alternate life line of thought where I, you know, instead of thinking figuratively in the way that I have in so much of my life and my work about an alternate version of myself, I was like, okay, let me quite literally write an alternate version of this character, give her a name, give her these characteristics that she imagines her to have. Yeah. So I really appreciate what you're saying about the gin. Yeah. And it is a part of everyday life in that part of the world. In the preface to the book, Christopher Myers talks about empathy. And one of the sort of prerequisites for empathy is that you be able to see the world from someone else's perspective, walk in their shoes a little bit. And that's certainly an experience that Nama has here, which is fascinating. But the thing that surprised me when I got to the end was that what she learned was, was like really empathy for her mother. Like of all the people she learns empathy and, and she learns to forgive herself and to have maybe a healthier understanding of her own place in the world. But it's that, it's that recognition about her mother's life. I don't know, to me, it was just, it was just really beautiful and fascinating. And I see that that is so much a part of the struggle of the Arab American literature as a whole, or, you know, I'm working right now on a volume of creative nonfiction. There's not an essay where the the children of the immigrants aren't looking at the immigrant parents and judging them or feeling judged by them. And and I, I just I, I found that that the resolution to this story was just so beautiful in the relationship between the mother and the daughter. So but it starts with this idea that her nostalgia her nostalgia, which is a nostalgia for a life she never lived and a place she's never visited, you know, that her nostalgia is a form of self-harm, poison illness. So can you talk about that a little bit? I don't know that it was ever about like disavowing nostalgia entirely, but I think it is, you know, nostalgia is a filter. It's uh, remembering things as better than they actually were or uh, cleaner and neater, more satisfying, more beautiful than they actually were and kind of cleaning up the edges and leaving out anything that disrupts the story in any way. And with Ni'ma, you know, she her nostalgia, I think, was almost a response or an imagining into this great silence that otherwise exists around her about what came before. I think she is the child of a deeply traumatized person. And I think is there's a little bit of intergenerational trauma going on there. Obviously, her mother doesn't want to talk about it. It also is like abundantly clear that something came before this, but no one around her is giving her language for what was actually there. So she turns to, you know, the, the glamorous Hollywood version of the thing with the movies and pop culture and the old photos where even, you know, old photos are different than like camera phone culture now because it, there's a formality 
to to photographing. There's a choice about what moments you are capturing. It's there's there was more of a curation, I think, to to photos, at least in like the photos that you then that then get brought over. You know, these are the moments that someone has made the choice to remember. No one is photographing the trauma really and putting that like in the family photo album. So she has this sort of like deeply curated, like second, third hand experience of this world. And so of course she thinks of it as more beautiful and less complicated than the world she lives in now, because it doesn't really have the human messiness of the world she lives in now. And I think part of Nema's coming of age in this whole book is learning to stop being such a binary thinker where, you know, over there is good. Here is bad. Yasmin is good. I am bad. My dad is good. My mom is sad. You know, like, I think that's so much of how we meet her early on in the book. And at the end, I think she's just learned a little nuance where she, she gets to go see for herself this dream world that she's been imagining and she gets to see yes it is beautiful just as i thought that's not the end of the story that's not the whole story that's not the whole story about any place that any country you know a country is inherently messy and a living organism i think that is like one of the main transformative arcs for her and i think a, a version of that arc is in reframing how she sees her mother which i think you know in maybe a less dramatic sense feels like kind of a relatively common coming of age thing where I think part of my own coming of age was learning to think of my own mother as like a full person outside of being my parent, even like learning that she like has a real name that isn't mama was like (laughs) mind blowing for me as a kid, you know? And I remember as a young person being so like my ears perking up whenever I would hear someone call my mom by her real name, because it like hinted to this whole separate life she had outside of our like parent child space. And it just made her seem so mysterious and um, kind of eventually sunk in that like, she had a whole life before I got here. She has a whole life outside of our relationship. Um, Just as I have a whole life. So it, I think felt like one of the major transitions in our relationship when I learned to be like, this person is my mother. And also this person is someone's friend and uh, someone's coworker and someone's daughter. And some, and those are like, those people maybe are all kind of different people. And I think Nama just learns a little context for her mother. And I think learns to be a little more generous with her mother because, you know, she only thinks of her, before as kind of her remaining parent and I think is kind of ungenerous to her in, in that thinking. Here's a single parent who is the, like the full extent of Nama's biological family that she has access to in this new life. And so she kind of puts a really unfair amount of pressure on her, especially in comparing her to the parent who she's never met, who is like perfect in having never actually been interacted with. You know, she just gets to imagine everything she wants about this father and kind of make him perfect in his absence in the same way that she is doing with this imagined homeland. And I think she just learns to have a much more three-dimensional look at things at the end because it also, the point wasn't for her to go back and be like, oh no, this sucks. Thank God we left, you know? 
and just getting to see that like, like a country is not going to do for you the thing that you think it's going to do for you. You know, there's, I don't know that there is like, maybe it's like this for some people, for me, at least, I don't know that there is like a nation state on this earth that I'm going to go to and be like, ah, at last, everything that hurts no longer hurts because of this country, you know, because someone drew a border around some land uh, and planted a flag. And then I got there and I was like, okay, all of my inner turmoil is resolved. Uh, I pledge allegiance, whatever, whatever, you know? So I, I think I wanted to also complicate her ideas around belonging and home and nationality and all this stuff and sort of train her eye to pay attention to all of the belonging that she does have access to and all these like family and community spaces and her friendship with Haytham. That's plenty that like, I, I don't know that there is any greater allegiance and belonging than those sort of intimate interpersonal spaces. I don't know. And, and, like, and chosen, no. chosen relationships, you know, it, yeah. it, your, your biological family is not everything. Sometimes your greatest allies and, and assets come from outside your family. You know, yeah. we, we all live in that world. So I think that what happens at the end is she, it was almost as though she was kind of stuck in all the judgments that you're describing here, the nostalgia that was romanticized, romanticized past or father or homeland, but then also, you know, the, her critique of her mom or, you know, the other, her dissatisfaction with herself and her own life. She becomes unstuck in the end, you know, and, and now, so it's like, maybe the nostalgia is still something that she can take out every now and then and enjoy <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, appreciate it, It's something that she identifies strongly with, but I, I feel like at the end, she's now able to kind of get, you know, leave, you know, as though it was a fever or something that she had, as though it was an illness, you know, now she can see more clearly and, 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 and be less, less judgmental as you're saying. Yeah. It, it's just, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful coming of age story. Um, I just, I just found it very beautiful. And, and I want to thank you for, for taking the time to speak with me this afternoon. I can't thank you enough for doing this. It was just, it was just wonderful. And the, I, I had the best week just because I read your book, your book made my week. So talking thank to you, you so is, much. is the icing on the cake. So uh, it was- it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for reading the book. Today's episode of the Scene Gene podcast was hosted by Sally Howell. It was produced by Asma Baban, Muhammad Jafar, and Maryam Rezit. It was edited by Muhammad Jafar with support from Eric Kiska. Our theme song was composed by Isra Darwish and our logo was created by Maisara Abdelhaq. Sinjim is brought to you by the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan Dearborn and the Arab American National Museum. Sinjim is funded by the University of Michigan Arts Initiative and the Ford Community Development Fund. Thank you for listening.